this fact, and that is with the skyrocketing number of positive cases of COVID-19, this is skyrocketing record-setting number of people who are hospitalized every single day. What you can do about it if you're a citizen is wear a mask. The United States of America is setting grim records. The number of daily cases of coronavirus is ahead of every other country in the world. It took the US three months to reach 1 million COVID-19 cases on April 28th. It took another 44 days until June the 11th to reach 2 million cases. Just 26 days after that, they passed 3 million cases on July 8th. A new record of increases is being set every few days. By comparison, Brazil, the second hardest hit country in the world, is still more than 1 million cases behind the US. India, which has a population over 1 billion people more than the United States, lags way behind with less than 1 million confirmed cases. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm your host, James Haynes Young, and this week we're looking at how the US became the world's epicenter of the coronavirus. So there's a lot of things that could have been done differently, not just now. That's Amish Adalja, a senior scholar at the John Hopkins Center for Health Security and an infectious disease, critical care and emergency medicine physician. Starting way back in January, when we knew that this was a virus that had spread through the respiratory route, that was sustained human-to-human spreading uh, occurring in China, all of that argued that this was going to come to the United States, that this was already outside of China. And indeed, it was already outside of China. As early as December, there were cases in France and in, in Italy. And we needed to get ready at that point with scaling up diagnostic testing, resourcing our health departments to do contact tracing, getting our hospitals ready, making sure our personal protective equipment supplies were intact and our mechanical ventilator supplies were intact, and start warning the American public. Back in January, in February, in March, all of that time was squandered because we had evasion from the highest levels of our government about what this threat represented. And then we've seen that mistake been played out again and again and again. even now it's being played out at the state level and, go- and with governors in Texas and Florida and Arizona making the exact same mistakes the federal government made in January and February and March. The slow response in the US is not unique. Many countries saw a rapid rise in early numbers and found that their preparation hadn't been extensive enough. That was the case in much of Western Europe and Brazil, for example. Some moved more quickly, but also benefited from factors like geography. New Zealand is remote, and when they shut their borders and told people to stay home, the number of cases dropped quickly. And then there were some countries with detailed plans already in place. Previous disease outbreaks meant that they were fast and efficient. South Korea, Taiwan and Vietnam, for example. Hamish explains further. There are good examples, uh, and I keep going back to Taiwan because they are well prepared because they had an outbreak of SARS back in 2003 and they knew how to deal with this. Same is true with South Korea, which also had an outbreak of another coronavirus, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, and really developed a system to deal with this. But when it comes to the United States, there was complacency, a failure of uh, imagination and wide-scale evasion about what this represented because there was this, I I think at that time there, there was a lot of concern about disrupting the economy, about scaring people, about derailing a deal with a trade deal with China. All of that played a major role in how this outbreak was responded to, and I think we're all the worse off for it. In January, when the first news of the virus was made public, US President Donald Trump 
said that he didn't believe that the disease would be a serious threat to the United States. On January the 22nd, in an interview with CNBC, he said, we have this totally under control. It's one person coming from China and we have it under control. It's going to be just fine. As recently as July 1st, Trump said that COVID-19 will sort of disappear. That's nearly seven months and 134,000 deaths later. Previous coronaviruses, such as SARS, the Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, and MERS, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, made big impacts in other parts of the world. There were 8,000 cases of SARS globally and 774 deaths in the early 2000s, but of the 26 cases in the US, there were no fatalities. MERS in 2012 had fewer cases, 2,519, but slightly more deaths with 866. But again, it had a minimal impact in the US, with only two confirmed cases and no deaths. Through February, Donald Trump was saying the virus would be gone by April. At the end of February, during a visit to India, Trump wrote in a tweet that the coronavirus was very much under control in the USA. On March 26th, the US took over as the country with the highest number of cases around the world. By April 12th, it led the world by fatalities, overtaking Italy, which had been Europe's epicentre of the disease. As COVID-19 rose, individual states issued stay-at-home orders. First, it was California on the 18th of March, followed by New York and others. Michigan introduced a stay-at-home order on the 24th of March, but with the impact on the economy, people's frustration began to rise. On April 15th, protesters started to come out onto the streets. Two days later, Donald Trump published a series of tweets calling for the liberation of states and a call to save the Second Amendment. That's the part of the US Constitution that protects the right of people to bear arms. When Governor Gretchen Whitmer wanted to extend the stay-at-home order by another two weeks, she had an armed protest and the world's media on her doorstep. Dozens, some armed with rifles, flooded the Capitol building. We need, we need to open everything back up. Uh, I understand this uh, pandemic going around. I really need to uh, realize that some of the measures they're putting in place just are asinine. They're, they're ridiculous. Like elsewhere, the pandemic has had a dramatic impact on the US economy. In the nine weeks to the end of May, 39 million Americans lost their jobs. Republican commentators started to oppose the restrictions. Suddenly, the question was whether the cure for the coronavirus was worse than the disease. Conservative commentator Glenn Beck went as far to say as I would rather die than kill the country. Suddenly, the conversation wasn't about the science or medical advice. It was a question of patriotism, freedom and rights. We spoke with Ethan Foss, an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Toronto. And so in the case of freedom, you have this relatively vague, yet cherished value. And the stakes become pretty high about what this actually means. So you can mold this idea of freedom and twist it in ways that are compatible uh, and promoted and pushed onto a fragment of the population. So a pandemic is an inherently sociological event to prevent the spread of the virus 
you need to engage in other directed. So not thinking just about your own self short-term interests. You have to think about the concerns and welfare of other people. And that means wearing masks. That means social distancing. That means second guessing your own desires. Should you go to the restaurants? Should you go to a bar? That might be in your personal interest in the short term, but in the long term, it requires a redirection towards thinking about the needs of the community and thinking about the welfare of the general population. At the federal level, you have the Trump administration pushing a highly individualistic, self-centered orientation that is in direct contrast with the needs of curbing the pandemic. What's required to curb the pandemic is, in fact, this more other-directed orientation. Ethan, who has studied and done research on the concept of freedom, believes that there are two different types of freedom in the United States. Individual, selfish concerns. And I call that a dystopic view of freedom. And this is in contrast to what you might call a democratic view of freedom. So the dystopic view of freedom is oriented towards selfish individual desires. It neglects how the greater good is necessary for individual fulfillment. And this is in contrast to the democratic view, which does have a tradition in the United States and in the West. Most famously, I think, Franklin Delano Roosevelt outlined what he called the four freedoms, freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, so uh, freedom from uh, destitution, and then freedom from fear. And these four freedoms are democratic in the sense that they require a functioning democratic society with some level of investment in public goods. And this is against the dystopic view. Ethan thinks that freedoms in the U.S., are largely divided along party lines. The Republican Party represents individual freedoms, whereas the Democrats represent Franklin Roosevelt's four freedoms, the ones that require social cohesion. But one side of the political spectrum has really been pushing to make freedom an essential part of their identity in recent years. So if you look at the history of the concept of freedom in the United States, and you can document this by looking at text documents, newspapers, how people talk about freedom, liberty, these various concepts through time, you see that since 9-11, conservative politicians in the United States, primarily from the Republican Party, have repurposed and framed this concept of freedom. This concept of freedom has been promoted more by the right than the left, meaning more by the Republican Party than the Democratic Party. And so there's kind of a vacuum. You really have to go back to FDR. And then a little bit after that, the civil rights movement in the United States to have an enumeration of the idea of freedom in a way that is appealing to those on the left. Over the past 20, 30 years, Freedom as a concept has been co-opted and promoted and defined more by the right, the Republican Party, than the left. But these opposing kinds of freedom are not the only factors at play. Amish explains. 
looking at the cases and where they're occurring. They're not occurring when people are painting their house, for example, which was illegal in certain uh, in certain states during this time, or when they're on a when they're going fishing. That's they, these things are not necessarily spreading the virus. So I think what a lot of the backlash came because of the fact that things were blanket in nature. So for example, you couldn't buy seeds to plant in your garden in Michigan. And nobody really believed that planting seeds in your garden are going to spread the virus. But but you could still go to the same store and buy food. But if you bought a seed, that was illegal. So that's what I think you saw backlash because there were a lot of silly restrictions that were put into place. Hopefully now, going forward, what we will see is much more science-based, evidence-based requirements um, and recommendations that actually reflect when the virus is transmitting. Looking for solutions to the coronavirus pandemic means that Donald Trump has to balance the damage caused by the disease, as well as the interests to the economy. And he has to do all of this in an election year. On November 3rd, Donald Trump will go head-to-head against Joe Biden. Recent polls are not kind to the incumbent, showing Biden is taking an important lead in key states. Trump's handling of the virus and the ongoing refusal to wear a mask are easy targets for the Democratic nominee. He refuses to wear a mask, failing even those basic tests of leadership. He scaled back meetings of the COVID-19 task force, in spite of experts saying that testing and tracing is necessary for reopening. He sent his testing czar home. Donald Trump wants to style himself as a wartime president against this invisible enemy, the coronavirus. But like any other war, any other wartime leader, he takes no responsibility. We've implemented an aggressive strategy to vanquish and kill the virus and protect Americans at the highest risk while allowing those at lower risk to return safely to work. That's what's happening. Our health experts continue to address the temporary hotspots in certain cities and counties, and we're working very hard on that. We're The relationship with the governors is very good. So with some ignoring the medical advice, stay-home orders being removed and cases still rising, what is the president doing? Operation Warp Speed. It was launched in May and looks to fund the development of a vaccine for COVID-19. They've set an ambitious target of rolling it out by January 2021. Eight different companies have been chosen to develop a vaccine with the biggest investment into Novavax. The company is being paid $1.6 billion to produce 100 million doses of the vaccine by that date. But it's not just about producing a vaccine, it has to find one first. And since it started operating in 2013, Novavax has never brought a product to market. Even in the best-case scenario with a vaccine by early next year, that's still months away. And the World Health Organization keeps saying that people mustn't see vaccines as a silver bullet. It might take longer than months, years even, until we get it right and make sure it's safe. Even then, the US might have another problem. The anti-vaxxer movement. Those are people who believe that vaccines are harmful, despite the overwhelming scientific evidence to say that they save millions of lives every year. Vaccines are the single reason that polio, smallpox, rubella, tetanus or countless other diseases are just not a worry for most Americans. And yet so many children today are not being vaccinated that in some areas, things like measles, once a relatively rare occurrence, is resurging. 
So then, what happens if a large number of Americans simply refuse to take the coronavirus vaccine? With cases rising at 50,000 and more a day, aiming for a cure by early 2021 still means millions of people will get sick. And that's even if the pace of new infections stays the same. But there does appear to be an interesting quirk with the stats in the US that some are heralding as a sign that things are improving. The number of cases is rising rapidly, but the number of fatalities has stayed roughly the same. Amish explains that that's not necessarily a good thing. It's important to remember when you get infected with this virus and diagnosed and get classified as a case, you don't instantly die from this coronavirus. They're, the people that get severe disease, it takes some time to, to develop enough damage to your body to actually die. So deaths are what we call a lagging indicator. So it takes some, it takes maybe two weeks or so from seeing an upsurge in cases to start to see that have an impact on the death rate. And we may not see as much of an impact on the death rate during this phase of the pandemic in the United States as we did earlier because because of a couple factors. One is many of the people getting infected are younger, so they're not going to they're not going to be hospitalized or die at nearly the rate that the elderly population will be. So and it will also take them time to transmit this to a vulnerable person. So that may even increase the lag. Number two, we're getting better at treating these patients in the hospital. We know how to manage the complications. We are better at managing the mechanical ventilators. We have some new tools like remdesivir and, and corticosteroids that can maybe modulate some of that in the hospital. Uh, n- number three, we're diagnosing much quicker. So we are getting these people hospitalized faster than we were earlier. So that may stave off some of the complications. The fourth reason is we're getting... Mu- so if you look at the United States, you're looking at the death rate. Um, much of that was from nursing homes. So maybe over 40% of our our deaths were in nursing homes. And during the early days of the pandemic, we've gotten much better at fortifying nursing homes, which is where we took, you know, a major hit in terms of death. So that's also something that may be better. But we can expect to see the death rate increase. It just takes some time. So how can the disease be tackled if the American people are so divided? Here's Ethan again. It's a pretty small segment. The problem is in a pandemic, you can have 2% of the population, 5% of the population who engages in sociologically reckless behavior, meaning avoiding social distancing, not wearing masks, attending large rallies. And that's enough to actually spread the virus across the country. New York was one of the first cities in the US to be severely hit by the disease. But now their numbers are coming down. And attitudes there are starkly different from other areas of the country. We spoke to Willie Lowry, a former producer with The National who recently flew from the UAE to the US and describes the situation landing back in New York. Once we did arrive in JFK, I mean, the most obvious uh, feature was the fact that the the airport was empty. I've been flying into JFK for most of my life, and I've definitely never seen it so deserted. But there were visual cues asking people to to stay with, you know, two meters apart, and, and they were being respected. So, so that's definitely a good thing. And, you know, you hear what's happening in the U.S. in the news, and you, you just feel like people are completely ignoring it. But that's definitely, that wasn't the case. Everybody we saw were, were wearing face masks and trying to abide by that, that two-meter separation. So a small percentage of the whole U.S. population that opposes these restrictions may be spreading the disease. But it's possible that as cases grow and the situation becomes more dire, it will convince them to reconsider their positions. But what actions can those in power take before then? 
Amesh feels the government has to find a more targeted solution to avoid what he describes as quarantine fatigue. I do think that people have sort of forgotten that we're in a pandemic. And the questions are, you know, what are the right actions for the government to take? And I think try to remove it from the idea of overreacting or underreacting. There are targeted public health interventions that we know work for infectious diseases. So we don't want people that are infectious to be out there spreading it. So if you're infected with this virus, you need to stay home. So that means that we want to have more surgical, more tactical approaches to this virus. In, in the future is much more tactical approaches where you're looking at what's spreading the virus. And I think that will be much more palatable by the public. And there's not a lot of good public health laws on the book. So I think what was happening is many governors were doing things by executive order. And that's going to be inexact because you can have one state ha- restricting something and the other state not restricting something. And, and it, it doesn't make any sense. So we, we want to have a much more science-based approach to this. And I think that I think all of this is in the context of the fact that we didn't necessarily have to go this way if we would have actually been appropriately acting in January, February, and March. Americans are divided. A heavy-handed approach to lockdowns damages the economy and, for some, their patriotic identity. Others want to isolate communities as much as possible to stop the spread. But is the world's largest superpower ready to ignore the rising cases and the resulting fatalities as they sit and wait for a cure? As the election draws near, the political wrangling over the handling of the virus and the candidates' individual commitments to freedom and security will only increase. The scientific responses might get lost in the election noise, but ultimately, how America handles the coronavirus pandemic will leave a lasting mark long after November. Thanks this week to Amish Adalja, Ethan Foss and Willie Lowry. This was Beyond the Headlines. I'm James Haynes-Young. Subscribe to the program by tapping the button in your podcast app and follow more of our coverage at our website, thenational.ae. We were produced this week by Aisha Khan and Arthur Edison.